Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about stories from African mythology and folklore. I am your host, Helen Day. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological African Storytime Sessions, which take place every Friday evening at 5 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. in the Mythological African Twitter space. In today's episode, we explore the relationship between science, mythology, and folklore. So while we wait to see who else is able to join, I'll share a couple of links in the space um, that I will be referring to. Um, and this is just to put a bit of context around our discussion today. So the first is the thread I shared earlier where I explored um from like way, 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 way back in the day. I think this is when I just started Mythological Africans, yeah. Um, just ways to think about myths and folklore because that will have some relevance to the, the discussion today. And then I'm also going to share um, where is it now? There it is. So a link to a thread of charities and organizations. Um, if you are th- inspired or thinking of donating for uh, relief for the people affected by the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, um, this is a thread of reputable organizations that you can use. And um, that thread is in here because it is a conversation about this earthquake that inspired this, this session today. So um, I'll put some more context around all of that uh, before before we start the discussion. So those two in particular. And then um, there was one other thing I wanted to share here. Uh, oh yeah, that's it. But I'm not going to share it just yet because I haven't started. Um, I was just talking about this with Laura on the timeline. I'm thinking of putting together a list of people, um, African analysts, uh, writers, who provide some contextual information around how to just think about and understand stories coming out of the African continent. And I think this is important, not only because these are Africans themselves, but because for for so long, analysis of African cultures, and, and even now, right, it's an ongoing issue, has been done by people who are not of African origin. And this is not to imply that some of these analyses are necessarily wrong. Matter of fact, I was just reading um, a section from the book Laura suggested and from someone who is going to be on our list. And one of the things he talked about is the fact that, you know, you read some, when you see that people from within a culture are accepting the writings and the analysis of a European as authentic, that's something worth paying attention to because not it's not just because they're European that they are wrong. And sometimes, you know, these analyses written by foreign ethnographers is really the best we have available because so many elders have died and take knowledge with them. You know, you, you read so often cultural motifs, figures, 
art that nobody riddles, nobody can interpret them because the people who had this knowledge have passed away. And sometimes the best clues we have are from the writings of you know Europeans. So, but to understand you know the criticisms because Mundimbe, for example, makes some really good criticisms of the limits of the European analysis without necessarily dismissing them. So that's something I want to work on this year. Um, Africans doing critical analysis of um, anthropological works. And that will kind of put some framing around some of the things we do and help move us past some of the, you know, hiccups that will arise on whether or not this is a colonial take or, you know, this is a white supremacist, like, these are real issues and I feel like we get lost in the weeds sometimes so it's good to focus things and get get the information that we need and move things forward. So all of that being said, we are going to go ahead and get started with today's um, session. So welcome everybody. Thank you for making time on this Friday evening to join in. And I'm Helen, as you might know. I curate Mythological Africans and this is a space to talk about mythology and folklore from the African continent. Not just uh, reading the stories, but understanding the context out of which the stories come and their relevance to our lives in the here and now. Because, you know, just because we live in the great modern era where we can connect over Twitter from whatever corners of the world doesn't mean that these our stories have gone away and they, they don't have any more relevancy. And you can probably hear my cat in the background being the bossy B word that she is. And I apologize, she seems to be in a mood. So this is probably going to last for the whole of this session. Do you have something to say, Estrella? Hmm? Do you have something to say? I know, it's the humanity of it, right? All right, guys, apologies for that. Okay, so this conversation comes out of uh, uh, an exchange I had on my personal timeline this week, right? So as as we probably all know, there was an earthquake in... Girl, I've done nothing to you. This cat literally just attacks me out of nowhere. Can I... Can I have this session? You want attention? You need my affection? What can I do for you, my queen? Don't bite me now. I'm just trying to pet you. In fact, your own problems are too many. All right, so there's an earthquake in, there was an earthquake in Syria and uh, Turkey, and the death toll is pretty devastating. It's about 40,000 people and counting. And that's, to me, it's just incomprehensible, you know, that within a couple of hours and in the aftermath of a couple of days, we've lost so many people to, you know, an event that you, it's just, it you can't control it. The best you can do is, you know, build different houses and, you know, it's just one of those things that happen and you just have to live with the aftermath. And so an account on here posted a question, you know, what, what do people think, you know, are earthquakes punishment from God? Are there a test of the people? And my initial reaction reading that question was, what in the world? Like, really? This is what we're going for? 40,000 people are dead and this is what we're going for? And, you know, I basically... Girl, I'm so sorry. Whatever I did, I am sorry. I am not even touching you right now. You guys, I am so sorry. This cat is going to go away. Jeez, my apologies. So my my question to this account was, is this a serious question? Because I, you know, I didn't want to come out and say this, this doesn't make sense. Like, why would you even ask this? You know, so just first to establish this is a serious question. And, you know, they gave a response which made me pause, right? It was a serious question, but it was coming out of the fact that that is, you know, something that people truly believe. There were people, Americans, you know, 
saying, hey, these earthquakes were a, a punishment from God for the, the failings of American society, which begs the question, why would God punish you know, Turkey and Syria for the failings of American society? But then, as the, the person who posted this question pointed out, even within Turkey and Syria, there are people who believe that these kinds of incidents are punishment from God or whatever powers they believe in. So it's it might be, in my opinion, a question in bad taste, but it is a valid question, right? Um, I wouldn't pose such a question at this time, but it doesn't change the fact that this is something that people are talking about. These are things that people are saying. So I, I was thinking about it today and I, I thought, hey, why not, you know, step right in? You know, what can we, how can we approach these things right? Because when you really think about it, there is this category of folk tales called explanatory tales, which are intended to explain as their, their title uh, suggests, uh, things that happen. There is a definition which I pulled from Isidore Pejo's um, book, Myth in Africa. And he, he basically states that explanatory tales set out to explain the roots of a society's traditions, customs, morality, or else natural phenomena. And if you look at folklore from the African continent and elsewhere, you'll see, you know, why the moon changes, you know, shape, why the sun chases the moon across the sky, why XYZ is this color, why the turtle shell is cracked. And you have all these stories that prefer to explain why people do things the way they do, why things happen the way they happen. And um, in some in some understandings from different parts of the world, earthquakes and other natural phenomena uh, are the stories that show up. So, for example, I grew up in Buya, which is a, a small town on the slopes of Mount Faku, also known as Mount Cameroon. And in the mythology of the Kwe people, the Bakuria people, who are the indigenous inhabitants of that area, when that mountain erupts, it is the mountain god Efasamoto trying to get to his wife, the um, sea, the, the sea spirit, um, Liengu Damwanja. So whenever there is an eruption, Efasamoto is trying to get to Liangu Namwanja. But then if the lava makes it to the ocean, it can cause toxic fumes, which is, you know, dangerous for people. So there's usually, you know, efforts to stop the lava from going to the ocean. And in my lifetime, there was one of, one such eruption. And uh, the chief at the time went and did the necessary rituals and, you know, did the appropriations and the lava stopped. And it was believed wholeheartedly that it was the effect of this. But at the same time in Cameroon, um, along that same volcanic belt are the uh, toxic lakes, Lake Nios and others, which every now and then will, you know, belch up these toxic fumes that will just flow down the slopes and kill everything in its path. And before I was born in 1986, one of such occurrences happened, the Lake Nios disaster, where in the middle of the night, one of such um, toxic fumes popped out and just, I think it was over a thousand people who died, not counting animals and stuff. And of course, the people in that area have myths and explanations for why these things happen. But then we also know that um, volcanic eruptions happen because there is a build of, of magma, you know, under the ground and they find a way to come out to the surface, either through vents in the side or through craters. We know that volcanic lakes, there is just a buildup of some carbon-based gases and it pops up to the surface. So, and we know that earthquakes happen because, you know, tectonic 
plate tectonics, that's just reality of it, right? You know, the Indian subcontinent, for example, is pushing into the Himalayan region, and that's what caused the Himalayan mountains. And that area will forever be, be earthquake-proof for the rest of our lives, for as long as we are here. So does this... Does this mean that these myths, these stories mean nothing? Should we dismiss them completely? What is going on here? And that's that's the question I'm hoping to explore with this session. Um, and one way, one way I want to do this is to start by reading a couple of the explanatory tales that come out of the Southern African people. Um, just to do a light-hearted um, introduction to the topic and then we will delve into the more serious issues right one of the most popular explanatory tales you'll see going um, across western central and southern africa and this cat is back is the story of why the tortoise shell excuse me is cracked and it, the, the 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 stories might vary but there is a the story one story from nigeria where um there was no food and all animals decided to kill their mothers to get food. And so every animal killed their mother except for, I believe it was a squirrel or some, you know, tiny animal. And they hid their mothers up in the sky. Um, in some stories, I think it's Tortoise himself who hides his mother in the sky. Um, but then the other animals, you know, figure out that, hey, something's not right here. Everybody's growing pale and these animals are happy. So they realize that these animals are singing a song to their, to their mothers to take them up into the sky and feed them. So they learn this song and, you know, try to get up to the sky to see what's going on. And uh, the, the squirrels come by and see what they're trying to do and warn their mothers. And their mothers cut the rope and all the animals crash to the ground. And tortoise shell, which was before that pretty smooth, um, cracked. And it was a snail with its slime which took pity on tortoise and glued the shell together. And that's why tortoise has the tortoise's um, shell has the shape that it has. And there are other stories within African folklore and other folklore from other parts of the world that explain why that is the case. Now, does this mean that we have to accept hook, line, and sinker that this is why the tortoise's shell is that way? What I find interesting is that in the case of the tortoise shell, for example, we will easily say, of course not, you know, that's, that's just a story that purports to explain. There are scientific reasons why. But then from within the same body of folklore and mythology and stories that help people make sense of the world around them, there are others that, you know, people will hold onto with an iron grip. So what, what's the difference there? Um, my surface level analysis is that, you know, it's easy to dismiss the tortoise story as just, you know, silly children's story that's told you know around the fire and then there are others that are more you know stories to do with issues of life and death and gods and deities and things like that and those are taken more seriously but these stories all come within the same corpus within the same people and their own efforts to make sense of themselves and it's important to look at stories in relation to each other in relation to what the people come to understand about themselves and how they see the world so um let's take a pause here while I get set up with the stories. And in the meantime, I want to open up the floor just for initial thoughts. Um, what brought you to this session? Any questions you might have? Any things you might want to hear addressed? Um, concerns you might have about this topic? Just open up the floor before we can delve straight into reading stories and, and talking about things.
and is not uh, up. Laura, there you go. Was just going to recommend a book that is is different from the ones that you and I were talking about earlier. This is not specifically about Africa, but it's a book by Karen Armstrong, who's written a whole series of books on the Abrahamic religions, on Judaism, Christianity, Islam. She's also written about Buddhism, and um, this is a book called The Battle for God. Mm-hmm. And it's a really fantastic analysis of the emergence, not of of science, but of history, academic history, Mm -hmm. and what it means for history to sit side by side with religious accounts of origins. And anyway, it's just, it's a a wonderful book that takes on this idea of of mythology and history and and why some religions in modern times have really seized on myth as history. And react really negatively to the idea of just myth as story. Yeah. So anyway, it's a really good book, The Battle for God. And if you don't mind um, linking to the book when you get a chance, um, that would be really helpful. And of course, um, I'll add it to the thread when I do the summary at the end. And that's that's a very important um, point to make, right? Because if we look, if we want to look at it strictly from science, many people who are hardcore scientists are also, you know, Christians or followers of Islam or Jewish or Hindu or, you know, Buddhist, these things can coexist. And my opinion on it is just the, the, the way you approach it and how tight a grip you have on whatever story you're holding on to and why you have a grip on those stories, right? Because science, religion, culture, these are all ways in which we make sense of the world around us, but also ways in which we can be controlled, ways in which we can be tilted in one direction or another. So it's, it's important to have these understandings because if, if someone can, for example, acquire cases where someone says, okay, XYZ is happening because you haven't done XYZ and I'm the only one who can solve this for you, that takes a tangible thing, power, your understanding of the world and puts it in the hands of a person who may or may not mean you well. So these are these are things that I I I really believe we should question in an open way, not to draw hard lines and say okay this is how you must look at things, but you know in a way to say hey there are several possibilities and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, they can coexist. So um, it reminds me of a, a statement which I I marked I I marked in the book that I was that I started uh, looking through. Uh, the one which was suggested by uh, by Laura earlier, and it's by Mundimbe. Um, I will. Uh, I want to make sure I read the title, and I think I'll share it in here as well. Um, Parables and fables, exegesis, exegesis, textuality, and politics in Central Africa. So that's where this quote's coming from, and I've just shared the link to it in here. But he makes this very important statement. He says, in contemporary Africa, one meets highly westernized and rational minds who sincerely submit to and enjoy the meaning of their mythological narratives. And each time I have used this case in public, I've had to face a question from well-intentioned westerners wondering whether these people had really assimilated the scientific habits of mind. My answer has always been the same. Why is the relationship between the scientific habits of mind of Christian European physicists, doctors, or university professors and their beliefs, or what is the relationship between the scientific habits of mind of Christian European physicists, doctors, and university professors and their beliefs in the meaning of the Bible? In what sense could one claim that their situation is not similar to that of African scientists 
who relate themselves to their traditional myths. In both cases, two apparently distinct modes of thoughts and practice coexist, one critical, rational, and aimed at mastering nature and its laws. The other, non-rational, is scientific, taking its meaning from the subject's irrational investment in musical propositions. As Edmund Leach put it once, the non-rationality of myth is its very essence, for religion requires a demonstration of faith by the suspension of critical doubt. So that being said, let us suspend faith for let's suspend critical thinking for a couple of minutes and look at the story of why the tortoise's shell is cracked, um, told to Lisa Granger in Bemba by a man named Godfrey Chenda. And um, Bemba is a language spoken in Zambia. Zambia is a southern African country, just for fuller context there. And if I can just jump in and say that book is so awesome because Granger did a really good job of contextualizing the stories and identifying the storytellers. I love that book. Right, It it is a pretty good book. And um, what something, the the, the spirit she brought to this book is something that I try to emulate on mythological Africans, which is to not just tell stories, but always give a reference to the people out of which these stories come and put some context around it so that you know, it's not just a story suspended. It's a story that's situated in its context, in time, in culture, in in just what it means for the story to be told. So the Bemba version of why the tortoise shell is cracked. So once a very long time ago, the earth was perfectly stocked with food and water. Every river ran clear and sweet. Every tree hung with fruit. Every blade, of, every blade of grass was crisp and green. There were treats around every river bend and every mountain top for the animals to eat, and every creature on earth was fat and happy. There was so much food that one day King Lion decided to celebrate with a feast. Gather your favorite foods and let's meet this afternoon under the fig tree, he announced. This will be the greatest of all feasts. The jungle was a mass of moving animals as everyone hurried about, gathering their favorite tidbits. Marula berries for elephants, river grass for the hippo, sausage tree fruit for the giraffe, and soft roots for hair. At sunset, everyone met under the fig tree and began munching and crunching with gusto, from the tall giraffe crunching his succulent sausage fruit to the tiniest bat softly sucking its guava. By midnight, everyone had had a marvelous time, except one poor old creature, Tortoise. The slow fellow had taken so long to gather his favorite cabbage leaves that by the time he arrived, the party was over and his friends were burping and barking and heaving their fat bellies off to bed. Tortoise was very upset. As he suddenly trundled home, he passed some birds in a tree. What's wrong, Tortoise? they asked, chirping and chipping. Why are you crying? The animals had a feast today and I am so slow I missed it, wept the tortoise. I was looking forward to a chat over a bit of wild cabbage, but when I arrived, no one wanted a nibble or a natter. The birds felt very sorry for Tortoise. His face was so tear-stained and his mouth looked so downturned that there was only one thing they could do, hold their own party the next day. And you will be our guest of honor, Tortoise, they smiled. Tortoise was very excited. He had never been to a bird's party before. Then his face went grum. Birds usually have their parties up in the sky, he complained gloomily. And I'm only a big heavy tortoise. How am I going to get up there? He had a point. How were they going to fly him up to their favorite cloud? The birds asked. I've got an idea, the kingfisher piped up. 
What if we birds each donated a feather to tortoise? Then the bees give some wax to stick them on. Wouldn't he be able to fly up to the sky? The birds all agreed that that was a marvelous idea, and one by one they flew down to give the shell creature a feather. First came King Eagle with a big glossy one, then Vulture with a speckled one, followed by Hawk, then Bubu, then Sparrow, then Weaver, then Ibis, then Stork, and flocks and flocks of tiny rainbow-shaded birds. And before long, in front of Tortoise's scary head lay a magnificent array of green, blue, black, white, yellow, red, striped, speckled, and dotted feathers. Gifts from the smallest finch to the largest ostrich. Tortoise had never had so many gifts before, and once his friends, the bees, had kindly spread their yellow wax on his shell, his legs, and his arms, they buzzed about sticking the feathers down. A great grin spread across his face. With a run, a jump, and a flap of his little legs, Tortoise was soon airborne and whizzing high up towards the bird's cloud in the sky. When he reached the cloud, he couldn't believe the feast the birds had assembled. There were green grasshoppers and geckos, plates of red ladybirds and brickly worms, crawly caterpillars and trailing snails, and trays and trays of leaves and cabbages and grass and fruit. What a feast! Tortoise's mouth started drooling, and before anyone was allowed to eat, the king eagle asked them to introduce themselves to their new guest. I am Kingfisher, said the kingfisher, flying forward and flashing its emerald wings. I am Warbler, sang the sweet-voiced Warbler. I am Egret, fluttered the dainty white Egret. Then the sparrow stepped forward. And who exactly are you, he asked Tortoise. Well, Tortoise said, looking confused. I have everybody's feathers on my back, so I suppose I am everybody, he said. Then the king eagle stepped forward. Now that the introductions are over, I open the feast. It is for everybody, so everybody tuck in. The birds looked confused. Was it for them, or was it for everybody, the turtles? Politely, they held back and watched as their guests tucked into the wonderful feast. Head down, eyes to the floor, Tortoise munched and crunched without looking up once. First, he gobbled up all the birds' favorite foods, which he normally didn't eat. The grasshoppers, then the geckos, then the ladybirds and the wriggly worms. Then he crunched his way through the caterpillars and snails. And once he had devoured that, he started munching on all of his own favorites, piles and piles of lovely lush leaves. The birds weren't pleased with Tortoise's rudeness, especially when he casually announced as he was going. At least he could say thank you muttered the grizzly owl. Or offer to share a worm, which we knew you don't even like, muttered the crow. Or halve the caterpillar, grunted the egret. But no, Tortoise was selfish. He was used to living alone and not sharing, and so when he finished his feast, he licked his lips and turned around to fly home off the edge of the cloud. The birds were furious. How dare Tortoise eat all their food and not say thank you? If he was going to be so rude, they decided they were going to take their feathers back for him. So in a great flock, the birds all swooped on Tortoise, each pecking the feathers off his back. And slowly, Tortoise felt himself sinking deeper and deeper into the cloud. Help, he cried as he sung into the whiteness. Help, someone, but not a single bird came. If you think you are everybody, then help yourself, they swapped, flying away crossly to their nets. And of course, without feathers, the heavy Tortoise fell to the earth with a tremendous thud. The landing was sore and very undignified, but even worse than that, it ruined his shell. His once beautiful, glossy, glamorous outer layer was gone, and in its place was a shattered mess of a hundred tiny squares. And so today, if you look at the tortoise, its shell is still cracked. 
The gods left it that way as a reminder to all creatures of what happens when you take your friend for granted. Love them and you will fly high. Forget them and you will fall, just like Tortoise did. So what I love about this story is that it combines quite a few things that make African storytelling in particular, but you know, folklore in general, um, such an amazing you know, field to, to be in. So it is an, explanation, an, an explanatory tale, right? But it's also a moral tale, right? A moral tale that's you know, intended to convey a, a lesson. And I can imagine such a Torah story being told to children, you know, to, you know, inculcate the understanding that you work with people, you know, you don't take people's um, kindness for granted, you know, you share, you, you, you be part of, you know, the group. But then, can we then blame a child who grows up reading this story and has no other explanation for why a tortoise shell is, is you know, shaped the way it is, if that's what they believe. And then imagine a situation where someone who knows shows up and says, well, that's not why a tortoise's shell is cracked, right? And I don't know, I'm speaking for myself, you know, the, the ability to transition from, okay, this is the reason to that is the reason would probably be like, okay, I guess it's a better explanation. But then that's because this is just a story about the tortoise, right? Um, I see you, Laura. That's because this is just a story about the tortoise. Um, there are other stories that explain more, you know, serious things, and then it can get sticky, right? But let's let's take some comments, Laura. Well, I was just going to say that you know, one of the things that happens with these stories, like Tortoise and His Shell, is that's just one version mm-hmm. of that story, and there are also lots of other stories like that about how tortoises shell got cracked you know so when you pose that question of what happens when a child hears another story it's not just that they'll hear a scientific mm-hmm. explanation that's different they could hear another folk tale that's different and those folk tales coexist they don't exactly. go to war with each other the way that science by its sort of just constructed nature as a kind of objective truth does go to war with other stories. But, you know, for, for children, I think the more stories they hear about how tortoise's shell got cracked, the better, and they can make up their own, too, because you can't have enough stories about tortoise, just my opinion. True, true. And that's a, that's a really good point to make there, Laura, about the fact that, for example, this is the, the story told in Denba. It's similar to another story from out of the same Nigeria that we heard, you know, the, the first story about how it was um, squirrels, you know, hiding their mother up top. There is a, I think it's an Igbo story um, of there being a feast in the sky and it parallels this one with Tortoise naming himself everybody and eating everything and results in him falling down and getting, you know, cracked. Um, so even within the same body of stories, there are different variations. Um, in the in the context of the discussion today, however, we're 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 running up against okay, but what 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 about when it does come in contact with science, and it's uh, 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 per, science being the one scientific um, observations being supposedly commentary that are objective truth, which that itself is questionable, right? Nathan, I see you. It's questionable because if you look at the history of scientific revelation itself, there are times when in the scientific field people wholeheartedly believed things, you know, practiced 
prescribed. And then it turned out to be completely wrong. So even science itself is on shaky ground when it comes to what is objective reality. But then that doesn't change the fact that we still have situations where in a cultural context, in a folkloric context, in a mythological context, something is believed to be true. Meanwhile, science with experimentation and, you know, reasonable amount of testing has proven that, okay, this is actually an explanation for why this 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 happens. And still, because, you know, people hold on to worldviews, ways of being and seeing with such tight grips, they will rub up against each other. And that is why, that is the main reason why I chose to explore this topic with starting with these folk tales, right? Because they're silly little stories, one million different versions. And it's it's easy to, you know, navigate these things with these stories because it's like okay it's not that serious but then it does get serious sometimes right it has actual implications for people's lives if for example you look at some stories that you know come with prescriptions for ritual actions to take to resolve issues and these are not you know say someone is sick and because of a story a myth cycle something that is understood within a folkloric cultural context the prescription is to do xyz but then X, Y, Z, you know, doesn't result in healing. What do you do in those cases? Um, that that is the that is the tension I'm trying to explore here, um, and sort of make the point that they don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? Just as um, 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 just as the the analysis in Vy Mundimbe's book uh, points out, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. It is possible to say, okay, this is what my cultural beliefs prescribe, and I'm going to take the steps necessary, the corrective actions. But this is another body of knowledge which offers me something, and I can use that information as well. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, Nathan, you're going to say something. Uh, I was just to say I didn't think I was going to end up talking tonight, but I guess I am. Um, <laughs> science would be concerned with the objective reality of the the nature of the tortoise's shell, and so it would certainly focus on that. My question is, are the stories actually worried about that, or is that just a vehicle to introduce cultural beliefs about ways to interact with society, with other people, and the fact that you can have multiple stories about the tortoise's shell is that what they're really talking about is it's more information about how to be a responsible member of a community. So is, uh, is that emphasis different than what science's emphasis would be? That is a great, great observation, Laura, of Laura, I guess because Laura, Laura contributes so much, my brain is, my brain is programmed in that direction. That's a great uh, comment, Nathan. Right, the intentions of the story to begin with, right? The intentions of the story, because the science, the question is, okay, is this actually true? Is this the the actual reality that the tortoise shell is cracked because of X Y Z? Meanwhile, to the storyteller, the tortoise shell being cracked might be an incidental, right? The the bigger, larger thing that is being communicated is the fact that you shouldn't be selfish. You know, you should treat people with respect. You should be gracious and considerate when you're a guest in another person's home. That being said, if we are thinking about things in, if we're taking ourselves, say, okay, let's go 500 years back in whatever culture, whether African or whatever, 
whether how the tortoise's shell arrives got cracked might not even be something that people really care about like what does it matter the tortoise is there its shell is cracked and life goes on right so that might might speak to to a larger question but then let's keep in mind that i am using these stories as an entry point right for for example if we moved away from the tortoise question right and and said okay why do earthquakes happen I bet in areas, for example, in Cameroon, you know, you have these these explosive lakes and volcanic um, eruptions, which can cause death, right? Have caused deaths. So why do these happen, right? And if it became a question of, okay, we have to resettle you people, you can't live in this area, as was the case for the people in the Lake Nios area for a while, where the question was, do we move these people out of here? You know, is, is it is it reasonable to ask these people to leave their ancestral lands um, or how how do we reconcile this? And I think eventually um, a foreign uh, company was contracted to build structures that would extract these poisonous gases before before they could bubble up to the surface. But at the same time, it didn't stop the people in that region from doing whatever they needed to do to make sure that it happened it didn't happen again and i'm not going to go into the details of that because it you know goes into people's magical beliefs and i have made a resolution that i'm going to tread very lightly there because i don't want mythological africans to become this place where people come to to prove or disprove things sort that out by yourselves it's your responsibility right um but where i get concerned is if it is causing harm Right. If there's a belief that is causing harm, for example, if you have a situation where people are saying this earthquake is God's punishment and you have 40,000 people dead, it's not just a question for us to bandy about on social media. In my opinion, that is just demonstrates a remarkable lack of compassion for people's real suffering. Is there a way we can talk about these things which do not throw aside the fact that there are real human beings at the end of these stories, there are real human lives that are being affected. And if, if, it, if it means that we have to embrace scientific reality, embrace scientific explanation, so we can move away from something that is clearly harmful, is that such a bad thing if coexistence is not possible, right? Because if we even look at you know, beliefs of people across time, they are constantly being evaluated. The, the, the shamans, the medicine people, the 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 griots the knowledge keepers were the ones who when strangers would come into the, the the town they would want to talk to them because knowledge was a premium right a lot of high level societies were founded around knowledge access to knowledge that other people didn't have and we don't perhaps we don't feel the pain of that now because in many ways knowledge has been demo, um, there's a democratic way to which we access knowledge to an extent so many things that we take for granted now as some of you may know was privileged information in certain societies so we we are coming out of a time when certain people had knowledge had access to certain kinds of knowledge even with the existence of stories right and in some cases it was privileged, in some cases it wasn't. So it's, it wasn't necessarily even a linear progression from oh, mythical times when nothing was understood and then scientific times when everything is understood. These things have always coexisted. Amundimbe makes that commentary. But my, 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 my inquiry here is how do we navigate all of this in a situation where folkloric beliefs sometimes lead to actions practices which can be harmful in the same way that we say okay how do we move when you know a practice within a medical field leads to harm 
if we can question in one direction, we should be able to question in, in another. Not to come down hard on anyone, on science or folkloric beliefs. They all are there for a reason, right? They are all our efforts to make sense of our world and take better care of ourselves. Am I making sense so far, Nathan? I feel like I've been going on and on and on, and I want to just make sure that I'm not rambling at this point. Sorry, that was the wrong emoji. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit concerned there. <laughs> there, that's the one I meant. Good, good, good. But um, am I am I speaking to your your comment at all? I wanted to check that. You um, hmm. I think that the matter has so many different aspects. It can be hard to to tease apart and yes i think you are certainly addressing a certain aspect but i think it's it's just so complicated and it's so hard to know right absolutely absolutely and and you know as i said in in my lead up to this the the point here is not to prescribe how people should approach things right i have my personal approach i have what i think should be the approach but the idea is to say hey these are issues that we have to grapple with and not talking about it doesn't help anybody, right? Because again, in my thinking, 40,000 people dead. To me, if the gods are saying anything with that incident, it is how, given what you know about how the world works, how are you set up to take care of each other, right? We know that, okay, earthquakes happen and they can happen at a terrible time when everything is as, uh, as skewed as it is in Syria. How are you set up to take care of each other? And if the gods are angry in any way, it is that we are not doing what we need to be doing to take care of each other, given what we know about the world. That's how I choose to look about look at it. But I am just one person, right? I am just one person. So let's go. I, whose hand went up first, Laura or Jim? I think, Laura, your hand went up first. Well, I was just going to chime in about something not related to earthquakes, but just something I see is so important about your work, Helen, is that one of the biggest problems that can come up in traditional folk tales and their telling and the harm done is that there can be some real misogyny mm -hmm. in stories that emerge out of a patriarchal context. And I love the way that you try to reclaim those by reimagining them. So not by saying, you know, this is patriarchal, we're going to get rid of it the way that, say, I could maybe say about stories collected by missionaries. This is collected by missionaries. Let's get rid of it. It's like, no, what is what is the reclamation that we're going to do here? And that, I guess that kind of echoes what you were saying about how are we going to take care of each other after the earthquake? You know, it's like, what can we do here that that builds something, that saves something, that that recovers something? And that's what I think is so great about the work you do, that you're trying to recover stories and perspectives that are are suppressed or diminished or even excluded from some of the story traditions that you look at. And I think that's really important. I, I appreciate you saying that, Laura. And it's, it can get a bit dicey because, you know, with, with, with real, real reason, people get upset when you trifle with their stories because there's a long history of stories being trifled with and people being portrayed as, you know, primitive and inferior or, you know, as if they don't they don't understand anything and they're backwards and and that that is absolutely not the intention the lens through which i look at everything i do here is one is it accurate whether i like what is coming out or i don't how accurate is it how representative is it of the people's you know conceptions of life and how can this be 
used to make people's lives better because that's what it comes down to for me. How can this story be used to make people's lives better? Whether it's just making them laugh, feel good, learn something new, or think about a way to approach the future. That's that's what it is for me. That's what it really comes down to for me. Jim? Yeah, my my first thought when you mentioned that people were saying, oh, this is a judgment from God, is how often that is invoked to either control someone else, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, otherwise the gods will be angry. Or to pat ourselves on the back and say, see, it's, it's judgment on them, not on us. I was a bit puzzled on Syria and Turkey are being punished for North American sins. That, I, mean, but... <laughs> I don't have the context for that. <laughs> but, uh, but then, you know, that's really almost too simplistic as you kept talking and I'd echo what Nathan said. This gets very, very complex because, um, you know, explanations. And it, it brought to mind something that I learned when I began living with the, the indigenous people in the Northwest Territories. It's a very cold land and very harsh. And I would, you know, out on the land, I would be taught, you know, do this, do that. And a lot of the practices were taught as what I would have called um, superstition or uh, uh, the explanation. For instance, don't leave your sharpened cooking stick standing up by the fire. And I was told, because if the sun comes up and shines on the point, you'll die. But a very practical thing is there's a lot of snow. And if someone comes to that area later when it's covered with snow and steps on that sharpened cooking stick, it could be life-threatening. And and so many of the things that I, you know, first when I was told them, I would tend to dismiss them as superstition or like, oh, there's there's some really Uh practical things. Hey, I don't know as much as I thought I did. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back for that, but just thinking, you know, our arrogance is almost unbounded (laughs) with our scientific knowledge. and and we're so, so few of us, even myself, recognizing that there's still huge areas where I'm not even aware of my arrogance in these things. I and then you you bring the the question up of well, what if there is a practice that does actual harm? I mean, I have that from my background as a farm boy. You know, if if you have an infection, you go rouse a cow in the night and get fresh cow manure and uh, make a poultice and, and put it on there and it'll draw out the infection. Well, it's loaded with bacteria. And you know, from a scientific point of view, we'd say, no, no, no. But the folk remedies and that, so I recognize that you know, it's really complicated, the difference between science and that. Um, but I'm just, I get really upset on the, uh, uh, oh, this is God's judgment and dismissing that without looking at what, what's our opportunity to provide help here? I, I really appreciate your emphasis on that. And I think I've forgotten whatever else I was going to say. I've been talking long enough. <laughs> that, that's okay, Jim. I, I, I really appreciate something that you said here. The fact that a lot of the stories which we might dismiss as mere superstition, when you trace them to when and why that story was told, there is a nugget of wisdom in there, right? And that's something which I, you know, in the course of doing mythological Africans' work and reading takes on the timeline, you know, you'll see people just so very quickly be dismissive of stories and say, hey, that's just people being dumb and whatever. And 
it's hard not to wince, you know, because yeah, the story might not make sense to you, but to somebody there is there is wisdom in there that is applicable to their life as they live it. So it's not until you think about it in terms of, hey, if you leave a sharp point up and snow covers the ground, someone might step on it and that might be dangerous. Then in that context, that story makes perfect sense. And that's that's something that I I hope that we pay more and more attention to as we, we look at stories, whether we're looking at them from the scientific point of view or from, you know, culture or religion or, science or, or or spirituality that quite often when you put things in a specific con- con- context they are not as irrational as they in- initially seem and as Laura pointed out earlier with you know one version one one story having multiple versions we do have the capacity as humans to hold multiple viewpoints right we have this capacity to to hold contradictions and I think that it, it can only help us if we develop it right if we hold things a bit more with a little bit lighter right but then if it's in a situation where things are uncertain as uh, 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 i think it was you jim pointed out if someone comes with a compelling explanation that you know if, if people are frightened and scared and they don't know what to do and someone comes with a compelling explanation then it gives people you know something to turn towards something to act on but then it also imbues that person with a lot of power over these people and what they think and how they live and that could be for a good you know reason if this person has you know wholesome good benevolent intentions but it can also result in you know pretty terrible things being perpetrated and then held onto as culture and passed on and then suddenly, you know, you know, people are being relegated to second-class citizens. Harmful practices are being perpetrated, and and you 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 don't understand why it's so hard to get it out. So so, it, ultimately, something I want to, I'm trying to get at with this session, <clears throat> is to advocate for being able to hold contradictions and, in the midst of all of that, ask yourselves, well. How can we take care of each other in the midst of all of this? So whether you're saying it's the gods or it's tectonic plates, what is expected of you here? Because a lot of these stories, right, even with the one we just read about the tortoise, it led to a conclusion, a way to think, a way to live, a way to be that was good for the community. Don't be selfish. Be great. Be generous. Be, be, have gratitude. That's, that's where I really ultimately want to arrive at. So... A, a, an earthquake strikes and it's the punishments from the gods. What are the gods angry about, right? If you live in an earthquake-prone zone, are your gods angry at you forever? Well, maybe their anger is that you repeatedly they have shown you that this is unstable ground and you're either not moved away or built structures to under to, to accommodate that, right? But just to not dismiss one set of beliefs whole wholesale, um, just. To, to adjust to things, I guess is what I'm trying very inelegantly to say here, is to, to, to take the, the whole story and emerge from it with an understanding of how to just be better humans, ultimately. Just how, how can we be better humans with all these beliefs? Laura. Well, and one of the things I loved about the version of the turtle story that you read, the tortoise story, was the way the storyteller took such care to tell us about all those different kinds of mm-hmm. birds and what they eat and all the different foods of the animals, you know, so there's all kinds of knowledge that can be in a story. And I would say if I were a science teacher in school, 
oh, okay, you know, there's this non-Darwinian thing about the tortoise shell, whatever. Look at mm-hmm. all children could learn about ecology Precisely. from being able to recognize all these animals, all these birds, to know what they eat, and, and to appreciate that from the animal's point of view, as opposed to just the way the animals serve us or are dominated by us. So there's there's so much going on. You know I love these stories. There's so much going <laughs> on in that story beyond just how the tortoise got his shell cracked. And, and I love the version that you chose. I thought that was a really good one. Right. No, thank you for pointing out that. Um, so it reminds me of a conversation I had with my mother earlier today. And you know, we were exploring this story, right? I was telling her about the session we were going to have. And as I talked with her, you know, something solidified within my spirit that while I was thinking about this whole earthquake thing, right, it's just like you were saying, Laura, the story for me was more about our relationship to earth as an entity in its own right, which has its own processes. And I I conceive of earth as a feminine, you know, entity. So I think of her as her. She is a being in her own right with her own processes and cycles and moods, if you want to think about them. Sometimes that intersect with human processes and cycles and ideas. Sometimes that are completely independent of human processes. For example, the Rift Valley in East Africa, humans had nothing to do with that. Volcanic mountains and and, and, and chains and all, humans didn't create that no human action caused that to come into being. Plate tectonics, nothing to do with humans. Huge implications for humans though, right? Huge, huge implications for human lives. But this is Earth doing her thing, living her life, you know. But then deforestation, for example, desertification, 100% to do with human. Climate change, you know, shifting weather patterns, toxic rain, all of that, pollution of the seas, 100% to do with humans, sometimes with consequences on human life. So to be able to understand when it's just Earth doing her thing and we have to understand and adjust, and when it is us doing something that we have to understand and adjust our behavior so we don't have certain outcomes, that's what this whole earthquake discourse came about to me. And I found myself at a certain point thinking, wow, you know, to me, it would be like, hey, dang, Earth, I'm so sorry. Whatever stress you're going through down there that's causing you to shake and crack and you know do all these things, I'm so sorry that's happening. And sorry to you humans, too, for the suffering this has caused. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. You know, but to me, the story became just us humans on this Earth, our relationship with her, her relationship with the universe that's completely independent of us, our relationship with her that is interdependent and, you know, that we sometimes try to act as if we can really, really master and tame her. And it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know. So anyway, this, this is what, this is what it became about for me. And this is what I hope to see now. I don't, I don't imagine, I mean, these stories, these issues are older than me. These issues are not going to be resolved in a one hour session on Twitter, but this was for me just a, one a, a way to work through my frustrations <laughs> from reading reading that 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 thread today and but to acknowledge that hey just because i find it you know reprehensible that people will talk about these things this way doesn't mean that people are not talking about these things this way and seriously too because there were posts like that on social media people saying you know hey 
these earthquakes are God's punishment for, you know, Grammy performances. And it's like, what the heck does Syria and Turkey have to do with the Grammys? Like, come on. (laughs) But these are things people believe. And if we even want to shift the lens away from that, even people within these regions, you know, in Syria and in Turkey, have a way that they're framing these events that we can't just dismiss and say, hey, it doesn't matter. This is what science says. This is what science believes. Um, I I think that when people are suffering, you know, explanations will arise that give them a, a, a way to react that will, you know, restore some sense of, of harmony, some sense of wholeness, a, a sense that, okay, they have done all they can to have this thing not happen again, right? And it's not always rational. It's not always scientific. And we can't just act like that's not real. So that being said, we have just about two minutes to the end of the session. I want to open it up again if anybody has any questions, comments, thoughts. I hope this this was helpful. I feel like I talked a lot more and we didn't read as many stories as I wanted to I wanted to read. But I hope, you know, this session was useful for someone. I hope, you know, this we learned something. I know I learned, you know, definitely a few things as we talk through things and it's um for me it's uh i think this is healthier than going at people in threats <laughs> that makes any sense like i've talked about it before just my dissatisfaction with a lot of the conversations that will happen on twitter sometimes because it feels like we're not really listening to each other we're talking at each other so um i'm thinking that we'll have more and more of these sessions where if some hot issue comes up and it has relevance in the context of mythology and folklore. We'll, you know, get together and have a live discussion about it. Yeah. So that being said, any last questions, thoughts, comments, reactions before we wrap up for the evening? If not, then uh, thank you all again for making time. Uh, we got together to just, you know, First and foremost, solidarity with the people in Syria and Turkey. And in the top part of the thread is a, a um, in the, of the space is a thread. Um, well, for the announcement for this Twitter space, um, there is a thread, and I think I'm going to go through and share that again. A thread with links to organizations that you can donate to if you want to um, contribute to um, relief efforts in Turkey and Syria. Um, but let's let's try to be good to each other, guys. Um, I think it doesn't matter what knowledge we have, what we know, if it doesn't end with us using that to be good to be to each other. And I think that's that's ultimately where I wanted to land today. So thank you all again, and I will see you on the Twitter streets. All right, y'all take care. Have a good weekend. If you'd like to participate in these discussions. Please follow Mythological Africans on Twitter at Mythic Africans and set a reminder for Friday evenings at 5 p.m.